The scripture is found in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell us that the women followers of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning found the tomb empty and heard a message from the uh, angel, actually got a message from Jesus through an angel. And uh, of those four uh, accounts, it's not surprising to find that Marx is the shortest. He's always the shortest, the most economical. But in these two wonderful verses, verse 6 and 7, inside the message, you've got the entirety of the life-changing message of the resurrection, of, of Easter. It's a life-changing message. And there's three aspects to it I want to look at with you. And... Uh, it's, there's a, uh, a word of challenge to change your mind in there. And there's a word of grace to change your heart. And there's a word of mission to change the whole course and shape of your life in the world. There's a word of uh, challenge for your mind, a word of grace for your heart, and a word of mission for your whole life. Look, first of all, there's a word of challenge for the mind. You're looking for Jesus, he says, but he's not here. He's risen. See the place he ought to be? He's not there. Now, this is a challenge to the mind. Think of this. There were dozens of messianic movements, you know, uh, in the decades before and after Jesus' life and death. There were dozens of messianic movements in Israel. And almost every case, the the messianic leader uh, was killed, uh, in many cases executed, and every other movement after the death of the leader collapsed. Everybody went home. That was it, except this one. Out of all those dozens of movements, one movement, and only one movement, didn't collapse after the death of the leader. And not only did it not collapse, but it basically uh, exploded. And over 200 years, it essentially took over the Roman Empire. And today is the, uh, by far, the largest religious faith on the face of the earth. Now, what made it different? I mean, there were dozens of these movements, dozens of these messianic movements with messianic leaders whose whose leaders were killed. Why this one utterly different? Why totally different? Now, the Christian church says it's the reason it was different was because this messianic movement found after his leader was killed that he came back from the dead and he appeared to his followers. That's what changed everything. That's why they didn't go home. That's why they exploded. Now, today, you know, we live in New York City and... You know, most of the people around this building, for example, who live here just don't believe that. 
All right, well, then they have to come up with an alternate explanation for why this one little movement among all these hundreds of movements exploded like this. And they say, well, we don't know what happened. The one thing we do know is we don't know. Because these texts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all we know is that they were um, written many years after the case. They're legends. uh, They're not history. And therefore, we can't really know what the real events were. We really don't know. But Mark challenges that, hmm? challenges your thinking. If you were here the last couple of weeks, we'll, you, you know that in eight verses, in Mark 15, verse 40, Mark 15, verse 47, and in Mark 16, verse 1, three times in eight verses, Mark writes down the names of these women who saw this. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. Three times. You say, why the redundancy? It's kind of weird. Why would you write it down? You told us once. Why do you keep telling us over and over and over again? Uh, and the answer of Richard Balcom, who is a British scholar, who understands something about ancient historiography, is that this is not a legend. This, is, uh, this has all the marks of the way historians did history in those days. Historians, ancient historians, gave more credence to the oral histories of living eyewitnesses, still living eyewitnesses, they put, they put those sources uh, as more valuable than written documents. Why? Because if, you, if the eyewitnesses were still around and they were still alive, you could cross-examine them and you could corroborate what they said. And therefore, living eyewitnesses were always the, the source of choice for history. And Richard Bauckham says, when you see these women's names put down over and over and over again, what you have is the eye mark, earmarks of not legend, but history. These are footnotes. These are citations. These women must have been alive at the time that Mark was writing or he wouldn't have used them because that's how historians used eyewitnesses. What Mark was saying by putting their names down was he was saying anyone reading this document, anybody reading this, if you want to check out whether what I'm telling you is right, go talk to these three women. They're still alive and they can corroborate everything I said. See, this is not how legends are written. This is history. And if you want to know, in a sense, the slam dunk proof that this is history, not legend, we say it every Easter, might as well say it again. Um, Have you ever heard of Celsus? C-E-L-S-U-S, Celsus. He was a a Greek pagan uh, philosopher, lived about 80 years after the life of Jesus. He was very, very um, down on Christianity. And he wrote a number of books, a number of uh, books trying to refute Christianity. He didn't like it, and he gave all the reasons why it couldn't be true. So he was very formidable. But do you know what one of his strongest arguments was against the truth of Christianity? Here's what he said. He said, one of the reasons we, we know that Christianity can't be true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. In fact, in his documents, he says, and we all know that women are hysterical. And everybody else in the ancient world said, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a real big problem, see. Now, why, could Kels- why did Celsus know that that was an incredibly strong argument in those days? Because in ancient cultures, you know, women were marginalized, and, and it was hard to believe in their, uh, their testimony. But don't you know what that means? It means that if Mark was making this up, if the Christians were making up these stories, they would never have put women in as the only eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible reason... To explain women in these accounts as if they actually saw Jesus. The only way to, to 
only way to account for them being depicted as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is if they were. And therefore, this can't be legend. This must have happened or it would never exist. See, Mark is challenging you. He says, this is a historical document. This really happened. That's That's a pretty strong case. Well, you know what New Yorkers say, though? Well, okay, okay, okay. I don't know quite what to say about that. I mean, I've been here for almost two decades, and I've been talking to New Yorkers about this. They say, well, I don't, all I know is this. Ancient people were credulous about miracles. They believed in miracles. But we modern people now know that miracles can't happen. We have a worldview that makes it impossible to believe in the resurrection. They, they were open to the reports. You know, if people heard that he'd raised from the dead, they said, oh, it must be true. See, but that back then, you see, people believed that sort of thing. But we now know that that can't be true. Mark challenges you on that. Oh, yeah, he does. Why? Have you noticed? Now, if you're reading through the book of Mark, and some of you have been coming regularly, and we've been going through the book of Mark. If you read through the book of Mark, and it's not hard, it's very short, you'll see that again and again, Jesus says, I will rise on the third day to his disciples. He says it in Mark 8. He says it in Mark 10. Mark is a a writer of great economy of style, and therefore, if, if it's in there twice, it means Jesus was saying it over and over and over and over again. Jesus was saying, I'll die, but I will rise on the third day. 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 Okay. You notice something weird? Third day. Okay. No male disciples around. And the female disciples had bought all the spices and the perfumes with which you anoint a dead body. Very, very expensive. Nobody at all was expecting this. Nobody was expecting this. And in fact, it's, it's a very strange story. If you're Mark, if you're the gospel writer Mark, you're trying to write a credible story, and you say that Jesus over and over and over again said to his disciples, I'm going to rise on the third day, I'm going to rise on the third day. Why wouldn't you have anybody, not, you know, not one person, not one person, not one disciple sitting around saying, huh, it's the third day. Maybe we ought to go take a look. What could it hurt? Wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't anybody? I mean, you know, he's the third day, third day, third day. He's dead. It's the third day. Well, maybe we got to go look. Nobody says anything. In fact, they, they, they do not expect it at all. They don't even think of it. In fact, you notice the very last line of what the angel says. He's tweaking. He says, we, he did tell you about this. <laughs> and, they, and they still don't get it. They, they, what? 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 Now, why would Mark write that? He wouldn't if he'd made it up. But here's the point. It was as inconceivable. The resurrection was as inconceivable, as impossible for them to believe as it is for us. For different reasons. Now, the Greeks did not believe in resurrection because the Greek worldview said, well, salvation is liberation of the soul from the body. So there's absolutely no way that resurrection would be part of salvation. And the Jews, some of the Jews, believed in a future general resurrection when the entire world was renewed, but had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. And see, now, what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to see, if you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, if you just say, oh, it's a nice symbol, but we can't believe it really happened. So what Mark's trying to get you to think of is this. C.S. Lewis says we tend today to be guilty of what he called chronological snobbery. You know what chronological snobbery is? It's, the, it's, it's saying, well, you know, those primitive people, you know, they were credulous. But you see, we can't believe in that sort of thing today. They couldn't believe in it either for different reasons. Look at the Jews. Jews were the last people in those days, and even today, the last people on the face of the earth to worship a human being as God. 
The concept that a human being could be the resurrected from the dead son of God was just absolutely impossible for their worldview. It was impossible for their worldview. But they did believe it. Why? You say, well, how could they have believed? It was as impossible for their worldview, though it's different than yours. It's impossible for them to believe as for you to believe. But they believed it. Why? Because they let the evidence challenge their worldview. See, what I'm afraid a lot of modern people are doing is they're just being intellectually lazy. They're saying, well, you know, our worldview doesn't make it possible to believe that. They did. No, it wasn't possible for them either. Well, then why did they believe it? Because they, let, they had the intellectual integrity to let the evidence challenge their worldview. Do you? Do you? You have to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for this little group exploding and changing the world when no other group did. You have to come up with an explanation for why hundreds and hundreds of people said they actually saw him and why it changed their lives and they spent the rest of their life preaching it and then dying happily for it. Huh? You got one? See, first of all, this is a challenge for your mind. Secondly, though, the resurrection is a word of grace for the heart. Look at this wonderful word. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee where you will see him. Do you see what a word of grace that is? Okay, if you want to get understand why it's such a word of grace, consider what he didn't say. He didn't say, you tell those faithless backstabbing cowards that I might see them if they grovel, and they better grovel if they have any hope of me reinstating them into the movement. Actually, that's perfectly warranted. You know what they did to him. But instead, here's what he's saying. He does not work the way you and I work. Jesus does not work the way you and I work. What we say to people is, if you, faithless backstabbing person, if you repent, I might love and forgive you. But Jesus says, I love and forgive you to make it possible for you to repent. What is he, see, what, see what he's saying? He says, I will see you. He says, I'm going ahead of you. I've got my movement. I want you part of my movement. He's forgiving them before they've repented. He's forgiving them so they can repent. There's a word of grace. There's a word of grace. But there's a bigger word of grace in this word of grace. You see what it is? Even bigger? It's the word Peter. Why does he mention Peter all by himself? You know, there's a bunch of disciples. Why does he say, tell the disciples and Peter? You know, why that? You know why. You know why. Because we've seen the story. That little word, that little addition is pastorally practical and theologically profound. It's pastorally practical because imagine, if the, what if the message had just been, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee? I want to see them in Galilee. If that's all, then Jesus, you know, that Jesus makes that uh, message and the message comes to the disciples and they're all sitting around along with Peter. And the message is, Jesus wants to see you in Galilee. And you know what Peter would have said? He would have said, you guys go. That can't mean me. Not after what I've done. Remember what he did. What he did was a lot worse than what anybody else did. But you see, Jesus specifically says, I have loving plans for my disciples. And that means you too, Peter, you jerk. (laughs) See, that's what he's saying. And that means you too. But you see, it's pastorally practical, but it's theologically profound because we talked about this about a month ago. Look, 
Here's what Jesus is saying. Peter ends up becoming the biggest leader, the head leader, right? Why? When he was the biggest screw-up. But here's the theological profundity of the gospel. Because his screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest, and his grasp of grace will be the greatest, and that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in Jesus' movement. Now, that is really weird. That is not the way the world works at all. But it's the way the kingdom of Jesus works. It's the way the kingdom of grace works. Here's why. Religion understands that salvation is by strength. I'm saved if I'm good. I'm saved if I'm morally, you know, and and spiritually strong. And I'm saved to the degree that I'm strong and I live up to standards, right? And in that view, failure and repentance disrupts the flow of God's power into your life, right? Because salvation is for the strong and you've just been weak and that disrupts, you know, tra- uh, repentance and failure is, is episodic and traumatic and it disrupts the flow of God's power into your life. But the gospel says you've got God all wrong, all wrong. Because the gospel says salvation is by grace, not by your works. Salvation came through the weakness of Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. And salvation of Jesus is received when you admit you're weak and when you admit your inability and when you admit you need a Savior. And if that's the case, then repentance and failure enhances. Repentance after failure enhances the flow of God's power into your life. Why? How? Okay. We hate admitting that we failed. We do everything we possibly can to avoid it. We say, well, if you had my mother or my father or my, you know, I didn't have, you know, or if you had my situation or you had, we blame people. We do everything we possibly can. We, we just do everything we can other than repent. Everything we can other than to say, I'm a failure and take responsibility. I'm a moral, spiritual, personal failure. You know why? Because it feels like a death and it is a death. But if you let your failure drive you deeper into the gospel, it becomes a resurrection. If you let your failure drive you into the gospel that says you're saved not by your work and your past, but by Christ's work and Christ's past, then you know what happens? You know why it becomes a resurrection? It drives you deeper into the gospel, which means you come to see more than ever the costliness of his love, the radicalness of his grace. You see your own flaws, but you also see how infallibly and infinitely and endlessly you are loved. And what that means, it makes you humbler and bolder at the same time. Nothing else does that. It gives you greater self-knowledge and greater self-forgetful. Nothing else does that. And on and on and on you grow and grow and grow because the biggest repenters are the biggest lovers. And the best leaders and the best counselors and the best parents and the best children and the best everything. Isn't that radical? It's a word of grace. And it comes at the resurrection because what's the resurrection means? It means It means your sins are forgiven. You know, when a criminal is put into jail and completes his sentence, fully, 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 fully satisfies the sentence so that the law has no more claim on him, he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. It was a huge penalty. It was a huge sentence. But he must have satisfied it fully. You know why? Because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. And that's God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody can miss it. And because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, God can come to you with a word of grace saying, peace.
Peter. The biggest foul up, the biggest screw up, the biggest death will lead to the greatest resurrection. So if you take the word for your mind and let it challenge your worldview, and if you take the word for your heart and let it soften and, and uh, change your heart, now finally there's a word of mission that will reshape the whole way in which you live in the world. And in fact, there's two little words if you look at them. There's don't be alarmed and go. Don't be alarmed and go, go. Go tell people about the resurrection. Go and communicate in every way about the resurrection. Don't be afraid and go. And you know what this means? It means if you understand the resurrection, it gives you freedom from the world and freedom for the world. Freedom from the world and freedom for the world. What do I mean? Well, on the freedom from the world, here's what I mean. Why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face death? Why is it so hard to face the death of loved ones? Why is it so hard to face uh, disabling and and, uh, disease and physical ailments that keep you from being able to do what you used to be able to do? Why is it so hard sometimes to do the right thing when you know it's going to cost you, cost you money, cost you reputation, maybe even cost you your life? There's many places in in this world and there's many places in history where in order to do the right thing, knew that it was going to cost people their lives. You know why it's so hard to do the right thing when it's going to cost you? You know why it's so hard to face the problems of this world? Because we think this world, this broken world, is the only world we're ever going to have. We feel like this money is the only money we're ever going to have. This body is the only body we're ever going to have. But the doctrine of the resurrection doesn't just say, oh, someday you'll go to heaven and get consolation for all the things you've lost here. The doctrine of the resurrection is that God is going to renew this material world, which means we're going to get back all the things we lost. We're going to get the things we never had. This material world. Johnny Erickson, I think about her at every Easter. She was a young Christian woman who was in an accident when she was 18, and she's now quadriplegic, and she's paralyzed from the neck down. And she has to go to church in a wheelchair. And when she was still trying to come to grips with this horrible accident, uh, she would go to church, and she was Episcopalian. Now, the problem with being Episcopalian and being in a wheelchair, she found, was that at a certain point in Episcopalian service every week, the priest called everyone to kneel. And that just drove home to her the fact that she was in a wheelchair. And every time the priest would call people to kneel and she couldn't do it, she would burst into tears. And, you know, it was really terrible. She was on the verge of having to become a Presbyterian. (laughs) But Easter saved her from being a Presbyterian, a fate worse than death, I'm sure. Because one day, the priest called everybody to kneel, and uh, she, um, she was about to burst into tears, and then... For some reason, she actually prayed the prayer everybody was praying, and it was about the resurrection, and suddenly it hit her. And in her book, she says this, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus, and then I'm going to get on my feet, and I'm going to dance. And then she adds, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who's spinal cord injured like me? Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who's just manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy other than biblical faith promises us new bodies, not just new minds and hearts, 
Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. If you can't kneel or you can't dance and you long to dance, in the resurrection you'll dance perfectly. If you're lonely in the resurrection, you'll have love perfectly. And if you're empty in the resurrection, you'll be, have satiation perfectly. And if you know that this is not the only world, this is not the only body, this is not the only life you're ever going to have, you're going to have a perfect real life, this kind of life, concrete life. Who cares what people do to you? If somebody comes and says, if you do the right thing, I'm going to kill you, you can spit in their eye. Why? Because of the resurrection. You can quote George Herbert poems to him. You can say, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him for me just a gardener. Spare not, do thy worst. All thou canst do is make me better than I was before. Come on, death, the lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. You're free from this life in a way, and you can be brave, and you can make risks, and you can face the worst thing, even life in a wheelchair, with, with joy, with hope. So first of all, it gives you freedom from the world. It really changes your whole approach. But then it gives you freedom for the world. What do I mean by that? The resurrection proves that God loves this world, this world. Every other religion conceives of salvation as escape from this material world. Your soul goes off to heaven or you go off into another realm of consciousness or something like that. The resurrection proves that God doesn't just want to save souls but bodies. He doesn't want to just save the spiritual but the physical that God must hate disease and he must hate poverty, he must hate hunger, he must hate death. And because he hates them, the resurrection proves that he does, we can start working against them. That's the reason we have an Easter sacrificial offering on Easter. That's the reason we put our money into the needs of the poor and the hungry at Easter. Because Easter means this world, this material world matters. And now I'm free from the world for the world. Martin Luther was once asked, do you understand this? Listen, Martin Luther was once asked, if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And you know what he said? I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do. See, you know the reason why you and I would never answer that? You know, that's not where your mind was going, was it? (laughs) Because you don't understand ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There is nothing better than ordinary life except it's always going away and it's always falling apart. And it, what is ordinary? Food and chairs by the fire and hugs and dancing and oceans and mountains. This world, God loves it so much that he gave his only son so it could be redeemed and made perfect. And that's, what you're in, that's what's in store for us. Can you live with the practical love for the needs of people and the practical freedom to give of yourself to those needs of people that the resurrection brings. Do you believe it really happened? Hmm? Or do you think it's just a nice symbol? Can you imagine the preachers of the early church going out into the cities, the highways and byways, and preaching to all the poor and the slaves, which they did, and saying this, let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It didn't really happen. But it's a wonderful symbol of how good triumphs over evil So let's be nice to each other. And can you imagine the slaves and the poor of the city saying, this is just what I need to lift me up above my life of grinding poverty and oppression. 
Let's be nice to each other. No, of course they didn't preach like that. That would never have happened. That never would have changed anybody's life. And that's not what they said. Here's what the first preacher said. They said, we saw him. We touched him. And that proves that into this broken world has come the power of God and someday it's going to put everything right. So fight the brokenness of this world and hope and relax because everything's going to be all right. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you'd help us take Easter into the center of our lives and let it change us. Reshape the way we understand our sin. Reshape the way we understand suffering. Reshape the way we look at the needs of people around us. Give us the life-changing dynamic of belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask today, in Jesus' name we ask for it. Amen.